Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Summertime Bit Boys. It's me, James. I'm Blake. And this week, we have a special guest with us. So last week, for those of you that were around, you probably found out that we were on the Cultured Christian podcast. And this week, we have its host, Kurt, with us today. So why don't you say hello, Kurt? Greetings. So thanks again for having us on the show last week. And uh, thank you for coming onto our show this week. Absolutely. It's definitely fun to do a little collaboration. We're both starting out this year, 2020, with our podcast. So I love that we're helping each other get the word out. It's very fun. Yeah, yep, definitely. And uh, why don't you go ahead and tell people a little bit about yourself, just in case they kind of didn't hear the first time round. For sure. Well, let's just start with me. I am a straight white male from the suburbs of Detroit, Michigan. So I'm literally on the other side of the planet from the summertime bit boys hailing from Michigan in the United States. And uh, yeah, I started the cultured Christian podcast literally just a few weeks before COVID hit. So no idea that that was about to happen, but uh, yeah, the idea was, you know, I, I'm a Christian guy. I have a master's degree in ministry. I've been a youth pastor for many years of my life. And I just kind of felt like, you know, sometimes I didn't really fit into the Christian community. A lot of times with, you know, believing in God and going to church, there's this added culture with it of Christian entertainment and Christian music and all these different quote unquote Christian things. And I realized that me and my friends don't really like that stuff. And, you know, we do yoga, we drink bourbon, we go to movies that, you know, people, you know, in the Christian community may frown on. And we say words that our grandmothers, you know, might not prefer to hear from our mouths. Um, so I just really started the podcast with, you know, my passion is for culture, technology, and faith. And so I felt like I'm going to create a podcast first and foremost for people like me, for my friends. And from then, you know, we'll see where it goes. And it's been, uh, I think we're 16 episodes in now, and I'm very pleased with the response and the amount of listens that we have and kind of, uh, you know, it's beyond now just me and my friends. And so I'm very pleased with that and excited to see where it goes. But at the end of the day, I think similar to you guys, I'm just really taking it as having some fun. You know, I typically have a, a bourbon with me and just hanging out with some friends and sharing what's on my mind in that given week in that particular episode. And so this has been fun to kind of branch out literally across the world and go international and talk with some uh, fellow gamers. So appreciate you guys having me on. Not a problem, that's, man. That's all good stuff. And it's uh, always nice to speak to people from different walks of life, different belief systems, things like that. Cause it'd be no fun if we just, as you said, grab one of our friends, had them on. And obviously you, you sometimes become friends with people because of similar interests. So mm. it wouldn't make for a fantastic debate, but mm. once again, Kurt, thank you for joining us. And, uh, hopefully it'll be another fun experience for all involved. So I'm going to hand it over to Blake. Who's going to go over what this episode will focus on. All right. So Kurt, once again, thank you for joining. Real happy to have you aboard, especially catching up with you for the past you know, few weeks, getting to know each other. But let's dive in. 
So this week we want to discuss something a little bit different. We often like to talk about different types of games or genres of games, such as we've done horror, sports, Jurassic Park, action. So this week we thought it'd be great with having a third person on to get a different perspective on what you believe is kind of the shining example of a retro game and also kind of a shining example of a modern game. What can you think of as a retro game that kind of is the quintessential retro game, or if not say a quintessential retro game, a retro game that maybe left its mark for what we are playing or experiencing now as a modern gamer. Same goes for any type of modern game. However, there were certain criteria or stipulations for this question. For anything that was retro, it couldn't be anything that goes past Nintendo 64, which is 1996. Anything past Nintendo 64, we said we were not considered a retro game, so it kind of narrows it down a bit. And then for a modern game, it has to be within the past 10 years. I know some people might disagree and say 10 years is getting kind of old, but I think 10 years is a pretty good number here since we're covering the decade. So we went off with that, and let's see what James, Kurt, and myself have to say about it. So, Kurt, you're our guest, so you may go first. Thank you, sir. Uh, well, for me, I, I'm the type of guy that I don't like to give it a lot of thought. I went with the two games when I heard your your questions, what we're going to be talking about, I immediately went to two games. And for me, I feel like that's, you know, just those games came to mind for a reason instead of really thinking deep about it. And, you know, for what it's worth, that's kind of how I chose these two games was just these came to mind first. And so for me, the retro game, a shining example would have to be Super Mario Brothers 3 on the Nintendo gaming system. Uh, I pulled out, I was sharing with the guys before the show started, I pulled out my Retron 3, which if you guys aren't familiar, is uh, Nintendo, Sega Genesis, and Super Nintendo all in one device. You plug it into your TV and you can play any games. What's specifically unique about this one is you use the original controllers, so you don't have to use these crappy controllers that come with it. You can actually plug in a real Nintendo controller, which I did. I'm smart. I bought bought the real stuff. And uh, yeah, so I dusted that thing off today. I literally pulled it out and spent about an hour with it and played Mario Brothers 3 and just confirmed that this game is definitely in that slot for me. Uh, it came out in February 1990 here in the States. And so I was just a wee little lad of nine years old and played it probably through my 10 years old year. Um, but, you know, retro games for me, I think are a mix. I, I don't typically play them. As I just said, I dusted it off. So I brought it out of retirement. But for me, it's very um, brings me back. It takes me back to my childhood. It takes me back to my teen years when I was just, you know, 13, 14, 15, you know, staying up till two in the morning, drinking Mountain Dew, playing with my best friend and talking about the game and completing winning the game, cheating in the game. You know, cheating was a big thing. Even to Today, I was surprised at how some of the things came back to me in Mario 3 where you could like go behind the white. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but there's like a part where you can go behind the objects and run behind everything. And it's like I remember as a kid thinking I was so cool because I can I know these little cheats in the game. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, so for me, that's what came to mind. I mean, obviously, it's a side-scroller game. It's, um, to me, the best Mario game. I mean, they started with Mario 1, and Mario 2 was a lot of fun. I debated between 2 and 3, but I still feel like 3 jumps ahead just a little bit of 2 as far as the uh, gameplay experience, the fun of it, all the different worlds, the different enemies and bosses that you're playing against and so that for me was my um, immediate you know jump to game when it comes to super mario 3 have have you guys played that game what do you what do you think as far as me picking that game i think it's a good choice man i was i was pretty uh sad that you chose that game and say it because i was like oh that was one that i was thinking about as well mm-hmm. but obviously i don't want to choose the same game someone else is choosing but yeah i agree i think that's like one of the best the shiny examples of mario games i mean the fact that you could hold on to different like costumes or outfits was so smart on the yeah. behalf of nintendo i mean it was so good like you know if you had like the frog suit like all oh, man's water level let's jump into that frog suit it was really mm-hmm. smart on their part the secrets were great and i mean i'm pretty sure you've seen the movie on about other people but you know what was the movie with fred savage wizard yeah I mean, that's what taught us, you know, some yeah. of those secrets for Mario 3. It was the largest, like, essentially advertisement to people. I mean, I don't know if you've seen Wizard lately. I saw Wizard. Was it? It's Wizard, right? Wizard? Yeah, the Wizard. That sounds familiar. Yeah, I, the I don't remember it, but I probably uh, did. You've never seen it? I probably It's ridiculous. The, the intro to the Power the... Glove. The one, yeah, the one with the Power Glove where the kids oh, like, yeah, the Power Glove. It's so bad. Power so glove. bad. Oh my god, the whole movie like sold you every single Nintendo product. It's insane. Like the power glove, the kid comes out with his leather jacket and sunglasses, 80s cool, pulls out the power glove. He's like, I love the power glove. It's so bad. <laughs> every kid wanted a power glove with that. And yeah. then they have like the Mario 3 contest. No one's ever played Mario 3, yet they're playing a contest for it. And some like little girls like, I know how to get the secret, yet I've never played this game before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just pulled oh, it up man. on Wikipedia. That came out in Australia, oddly enough, in 1990. But Fred Savage was in it. And um, yeah, I'm going to have to check that out. I, I I think I saw it, but it's not ringing a bell much. Christian Slater as well is in that. Yeah. Huh. How about you, James? Oh, my retro game? Oh, I meant like, hey, you have any thoughts on Mario Brothers 3 or anything? Oh, sorry. You- uh um, yeah, so Mario Brothers 3, yep, definitely. I mean, Mario Brothers had kind of like a, a weird inception in the West where like the first one was kind of like, it was like that Donkey Kong style one, wasn't it? Where the mm-hmm. barrels yep. would come down and it was like, he wasn't really Mario at that point. He was Jumpman. And then the second one, we didn't actually get the second one. We got Doki Doki Panic reskinned as a Mario game because they, I think there was something to do with the difficulty. They believed it was too advanced for our tiny Western brains. And uh, then, yeah, Mario Party 3 came out. And they, uh, one thing I liked was the whole aesthetic of it where the curtain drops down and you can see like the little nuts and bolts over everything, like implying that it's all supposed to be kind of sort of a stage play. Mm. So I really liked that for me, it was like one of the first games that I played that kind of tried to do something through visual storytelling and didn't directly tell you what was going on and left it up to your imagination. And I also liked the, the choice of the overworld instead of just going from level one to level two, the map kind of had like different things on it, like a, 
they had the mini game like the card matching game yeah. the slot game there's some you choices get, you don't just yeah. have to go yeah. to the next thing yeah and there's some mild puzzle solving as well because i know that certain enemies can be defeated easier with certain items or the flute will open up secret paths and things like that and uh for me as well, that game is super nostalgic because I believe they used the map screens from Super Mario Brothers 3 for the Super Mario Brothers Super Cartoon Show. So yeah. like whenever they introduced the name of an episode, that would be in the background. Uh, gameplay was pretty tight. As Blake already said, Like the, it was fantastic that you could get these costumes that slightly altered Mario's ability. Um, I think I'm correct in saying that whenever you got to the end of a stage, there was like a box cycling items, wasn't there? Yes. Yep. Yeah. And was it, you got whatever the item was, or you had to try and match three over the course of three levels? You match three. And that, that again, incentivized you because you could get level ups, you could get, you know, uh, fire breathing Mario, or you could get raccoon Mario, but yeah. It was yep. an incentive at the end. But again, it was a built-in chance. So there was a little yes. like yeah. game at the end, if you will, a little uh, slot machine that's kind of scrolling. And so, yeah, that was a fun little, you know, looking back now, again, we're talking in a retro space back in 1990. But at the time, it felt, you know, fresh and new and different than what the other games had. The other games didn't have that. So that was uh, good on Nintendo to bring something fresh like that to the table. Yeah, although I do, I do blame that game for the inception of loot boxes. Loot boxes? What do you mean? You, you get a little loot box at the end of every level. Yeah, but you yeah, have the to loot box doesn't change anything. Yeah, I'm joking. But yeah, it uh, it kind of highlights one of my favorite things about retro games as well. That nobody sat down and held you by the hand and gave you a tutorial that forced you through something. You learned by playing. So whenever you met a new enemy, they would always be far enough away from you that they pose no threat and that they would cycle through their animations a couple of times before they got to you so that you had a chance to see what threat that enemy posed and give you time to think about the best way to deal with it. And I think Mario did that really well because it would never just throw an enemy at you and force you to go straight at them they would kind of let you establish what the rules were through showing you and not telling you. Hmm. So I thought it was, uh, it had a lot of good ideas. I mean, it's one of those games where you look at the second one and then you look at the third one and it's a huge jump in quality overall. I think that game came out right at the end of the NES's life cycle as well. So it was pushing the console to its limit. Yeah, the very yeah. next game, which you know progressively would be Super Mario 4, but it wasn't. It was Super Mario World on the SNES Super Nintendo. Yeah. So that entered into my teen years growing up in the 90s was with Super Nintendo. That was by far the most gaming. Um, you know, my younger childhood, my boyhood years were with Nintendo, and then my teen years were with Super Nintendo. And so, yeah. But I just felt like, and again, I don't know what you guys think, but for me... Super Mario World on Super Nintendo, I had it, but it didn't have the same effect. I didn't, I didn't, I don't know. It was too different, I guess. There was enough that they jumped so far that I felt like for me, that wasn't definitely, didn't have the same effect on me or Mark as Super Mario 3. I don't know. That's you just didn't like me, Yoshi? But... 
yeah, just corny, you know, sitting on his back and his tongue, tongue, you know, you punch him in the out. head, man. Donkey punch. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like I said, I wasn't a terrible game. I had it, but for me, for some reason, there was something about Super Mario 3 that was supreme. It was better than Super Mario World. All right. Well, so yeah, I can, I can understand that. It's just, uh, I think I'm slightly on the other side that I preferred World, but that was literally because I never owned a NES for quite a while. And my uncle owned a Super Nintendo and he had the Mario World bundle. So for the longest time, that was the only game that was included with it. So whenever we'd go to his house, that was there. And me and my brother spent like hours every day playing that game. How dare you? I know, right? You're not allowed to disagree with your guests. You have to be in complete agreement and alignment. <laughs> I'll be. I played Mario World first, and then I played was Super Mario All Stars, which had Mario Three. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I played Mario World first. Well, actually, no, I played the original Mario game first. Not you. What you were referring to before was like Donkey Kong, not Mario One. Mario yep. One was like normal 2D. Uh, size oh, that was the, Anyways. the battling one, wasn't it? Or was that Super Mario Bros? Now I'm confused. That was just Mario Bros. So basically, you had the Donkey Kong game, which is called Donkey Kong, where you play as Jumpman. Then you had the actual Mario game, where it's like, you know, you and Luigi, and there's all the enemies falling. Then you had Super Mario Bros. number one, which was on NES, which is like the traditional Mario game. Then you had Mario yes. Brothers 2, which is Doki Doki Panic. Then you had Mario Brothers 3, which is the one we're discussing. So anyways, like, I played the OG Mario Brothers. I put the battling one, Mario Bros., yeah. Then I played Super Mario Bros, but the first one I ever owned was Super Mario World. But when I got Mario All-Stars, I would say Super Mario World 3 became my favorite. So I agree with Kurt. I felt there was just a lot more variety in it. Uh, well, you know, I did like Mario World, Super Mario World. That was great, but I don't know. I love the variety in 3. I Well, like I said, I played the one on Super Nintendo, so the graphics were a lot nicer to look at than the NES one. Yeah. And just like all the costumes played so well versus mario world all you had is like fire mario and cape mario i think they had yeah. yoshi that was it so i felt kind of like yeah yoshi was cool and cape mario was great but i really wish there was more costume choice yeah yeah there's definitely more variety in three the um the other thing that we're forgetting or maybe it's just not been mentioned yet is these these game consoles came with Mario. So your first NES came with Super Mario Brothers. Your Super Nintendo most likely came with Super Mario Brothers World or Super Mario World, I forget the full title. So that goes a long way, right? If that it's like if there's an app installed on your phone, it's like, well, that's gonna get more more gameplay and more recognition and traction simply because it was bundled with the console mario 2 and 3 you had to either rent it you know hashtag go going back to blockbuster days you could <laughs> rent video games um or you purchase them so that was a choice from the consumer where a lot of times when you bought the console there wasn't really a variety of like oh i can get nintendo with this game or this game you got it with super super mario brothers so everybody started there that was the beginning of your gaming journey and if I recall right, Super Nintendo was the same way. You had to get it with Mario and Yoshi. And, you know, that was the game that we all started on. So I think that's cool in the sense that, like, I'm looking to PS5 and probably not going to come with the game. Like, it's kind of cool that back in the day you bought a console and it was pretty much 
you know, tied to a first title and you started gaming right when you unpackaged it. And nowadays you get a console and typically, I mean, they do have bundles, but usually at launch you start with just the console and it's like, well, good luck. I hope there's a game you can play on it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I think the Switch is the first time in quite a while that Nintendo actually hasn't done it recently because well, the DS the, didn't have it. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, sorry, like actual consoles, not like yeah. handhelds. So it's like the okay. Wii came with uh, Wii Sports, which, as yeah. Kurt said, was a genius move because it went on to be one of the best-selling games of all yep. time because it was bundled with the console. And then the Wii U came with uh, Wii Land or something. I can't Wii remember. Wii Resort, wasn't it? No. Yeah. No, it was like was a theme Wii park Resort. or something. Yeah. But basically, that was kind of, to me, was like, that old school classic Nintendo of like, we're not going to give you like a triple A game, but we're going to give you something that showcases what's coming. Yep. And the first one we sports obviously like went on to be gangbusters and people who bought their console secondhand would actually go out and buy a copy of it mm. because it was yeah. that popular. I remember when I worked in a secondhand game store at one point we were selling just a cardboard sleeve game version of that for $15 because people would pay it. Hmm. so yeah it's one of those things that's kind of sad to see as you said you sometimes get bundles and the one thing that to go off on a bit of a tangent that really annoys me about those bundles is usually you don't even get the hard copy of the game anymore it is like right. a download code yeah. yeah and i don't know about you two but i am a physical media guy i love my game collection back in england i have a, a pretty robust game collection of retro stuff and I am, unless I know there is no physical copy of a game in existence, I will go out of my way to try and get the physical copy as opposed to having the digital download version. I think you're a dying breed, my friend. I think in five years, good luck. There's not going to be, everything's yep. going to be uh, streamed. Yep. <laughs> that's the one thing that makes me sad, but... I have, that's why I go to retro conventions when I'm back in England, because it's that joy of going in and finding one of those games like Super Mario Brothers 3 in box with the manual that kind of gives me that rush of being like an eight-year-old again, going to the game store and it being this big ceremonious event of you can have one thing out of this entire <laughs> store and then maybe that's so, it for another six months. Are you telling me um, that hitting download on your game system isn't the same satisfaction as what you just no, said? No, man. The of course gratification doesn't get to me. Like, for example, I bought a game off the, uh, the Steam Summer Sale yesterday. Uh -huh. It just didn't feel real because it's just click, click. Oh, that money's gone from my account now. Yeah. And you don't realize um, it, but like the physical copy, like for me, part of the experience of those games, so it kind of going back to, uh, obviously this isn't specific to Mario, but part of the experience of that game was buying it and then sitting in the car home and thumbing through the manual repeatedly, thinking like, oh, soon, soon, like five more minutes, two more minutes, I'm almost home, this looks amazing. <laughs> and you just don't get that anymore. That's cool. But I think we've waffled long enough on that. So yeah. Let's move on to your choice, James. My choice is, uh, this was really hard for me because I was coming at it from two angles, like obviously a retro game that I liked, 
might not be an influential game. So I kind of split the difference and I went with Pokemon Blue and Red on the Game Boy. And the reason I went with that is because there were decent titles on the Game Boy before that. Like uh, there was some, there was my favorite Zelda game on there, Link's Awakening. There was some decent Mario titles. But up until that point, I kind of saw the Game Boy as like a very pick it up, play with it for five minutes, lose your progress when you turn it off for the most part. Pokemon was the first thing that kind of made the Rock, Paper, Scissors RPG battle system a mainstream thing. And they had the genius idea of bundling it with something that kids would go nuts for and want to collect every last one of them. When I was growing up, I don't remember any game taking over any school or anybody's life as much as Pokemon did. When that thing dropped, everyone would bring it to school and everyone was battling, everyone was trading. And I think that really sort of kicked off RPGs as a more of a mainstream access thing and also kind of went with the whole like collectathon idea that that could be part of the gameplay. It wasn't just an arbitrary thing of, oh, this game has like badges in it. Get them all for fun. It's kind of like this has 150 monsters in it. Each one has some use against another monster. And to me, that was just like marketing genius. Hmm. Uh, it's like, uh, as I said, I, don't, I really am not interested in Pokemon now. I stopped playing after like the second generation but I don't remember anything making me so hyped to get a copy of a game because it felt like you were buying in to this um, cultural phenomenon at the time that if you didn't have it, you were kind of missing out. Mm. That everyone else had it. Everyone else was having a real good time talking about it, trading, playing, battling. And if you didn't have it, you were kind of not excluded from your friendship, but you were kind of excluded from this special thing that they were being a part of nice and was that yeah. the original that was on the original game boy right yeah the gba the uh, monochrome like green and black looking thing Do you guys remember i see i never had game boy i had friends and people in my life who had it what did that retail at start was that like a 200 dollars oh, thing or where where was that at i don't know i got it as a look. gift yeah i got mine for christmas i'm gonna have to check that Let's see. Hmm. What did the GBA retail for? Not GBA, probably two, sorry, GB. It's probably a funny, 200. It's a funny story again, connected to you guys living in Japan. I watched a video like last week. I watch all these crazy YouTube videos as you guys know, but the audience doesn't. And one of the videos was a guy in a store in Japan buying a Game Boy. And it was, I think $74, whatever that would be in yen, it was 74 bucks. And I was like, dude, when I go to Japan, when I visit, I'm buying a Game Boy. So it's just kind of funny to hear you talk about it. But I don't um, know if that's like a good price or not. I have no reference point. It says they originally retailed for 12,500 yen, which is around the equivalent of like $120. Okay. So hmm. yeah, they're... Um, I think the most, again, just to go off on a bit of a tangent, especially here or when I used to go to retro events in England, it's a real interesting subcategory of collectors that people who break them apart 
and stick LED lights in them or glow buttons so that yeah. the original Game Boy could be backlit and that you That's could too- then play it at night. Yeah, that's one of those things looking back, like when you see it, like you have to do a double take. Like I'm just like, yeah. there's no backlight in it. Like how do you, you yeah. have to play it in a lit room. It's so random, but we're seeing it, you know, through the lens of history now and all these game systems that came after. And a side note, I would just say, I think it'd be a good topic for an upcoming, uh, if you haven't done it, but I'd love to hear you guys talk about handheld games. I don't know if you've done that yet, but that would be a great episode. Yeah, definitely something to look forward to or think about as well. Do you have any uh, input on the whole Pokemans phenomenon, Blake? Well, yeah, I do. I want you guys to finish up. So I might go on a tangent because I was uh, uh, I was obviously the targeted person for that. I pre-ordered the game. Uh, all my friends around me pre-ordered the game. Our school was also hit really hard by the Pokemon ban. So we're talking about every single break in lunch, people brought those link cables and we were just trading and battling every single lunch time and every single break. I remembered it was also this thing that spanned every grade. It was one of the few things where like you could be in like first or second grade and you'd be battling and someone who's in sixth grade. It was a huge deal. Cause you know, back then sixth graders do not hang out with first graders. No. And then I remember as Pokemon you know, got a little bit older. There was all these like rumors. The mill, you know, the rumor mill was insane. Like on the schoolyard, you'd be like, "Oh man, you can get Mew. Mew is underneath that you know truck by the truck. SS Ant." Yeah. And then I remember one guy who was in sixth grade. He had a Game Shark. No one else had a Game Shark, and he was like, "Hey guys, I can give you the Mew." And it was like a drug dealer. He had the Game Shark, and no one else around us had a Game Shark. And he was selling off the of using his Game Shark to get a Mew. So basically, he was selling a Mew for like five bucks. But it was legit. We're talking about like every single like little kid was spending like five bucks to get a Mew. This dude made a bunch of money. I think he got into a shit ton of trouble in the school. That's why I didn't mean like Pokemon's a pretty good thing, a pretty good choice. Because like, damn, at least for me growing up, there was so much culture surrounding it. It used to be on the news all the time. Like, oh, are they making kids violent? Because like kids are trying to steal other people's Pokemon games. Or they used to call Pokemon. And um, there was also stupid jokes on the schoolyard, like, oh, man, do you like Pokemon? No, but I like poking your mom <laughs> and Ooh, stupid oh, shit like Jesus that. Christ. And so to me growing up, I was like, oh, man, that, that was the shit. I remember being in my living room playing underneath like, uh, like a table lamp because you, know, you couldn't play yeah, the fucking yeah, yeah. thing. And then you got to be really careful how you play the game because like the light would reflect off. You want to hit me in the eyes, but if you get too much in the shadows, you can't see anything. And then I remember it was the first time where I was like, dude, I need to get rid of this chunky Game Boy and bought that Game Boy Pocket. Immediately, yeah. like, oh my God. Changed, it just changed the game. Bigger screen. It was no longer green. It was gray and black. It looked so much nicer. But I had the old school Game Boy Pocket. There was no battery light on it. So you had no clue when it was going to die on you. So <laughs> I remember I used to have to time how much, how many hours I got my Game Boy Pocket before it died. I think it was about uh, 15 hours. So I used to like literally put a timer next to him and be like, okay, I got an hour left till this thing dies. That's how much I used to play like Pokemon. Kids, I had, huh? I was just going to say kids today don't even understand the struggle. Like this is <laughs> just, they have no idea. <laughs> oh man, it was, it was hard. But I remember I collected all 151 Pokemon and I got every Pokemon to level 100. And then do you remember when Missing No came out? That shit was a big fucking deal. Everyone's like, wait, what? Missing No? 
this huge game glitch and it was also part of the rumor mill but it was covered in every gaming mag nintendo power uh what was that game oh god was it game pro electronic was electronic that one, monthly uh, that one also came about from the what was it, the rare candy glitch where you yeah, could uh, you- duplicate whatever item that you had in your like fifth pokemon slot or something uh, I think, yeah, fifth item slot, but it was for anything. As long as you killed missing, now you see over and over again, but slowly it like corrupts your game or whatever. But yeah, it was great. It Loved it. Screws your game up completely. But yeah, it's, I think it's really hard to, I mean, I think bef- just before I came to Japan, when I was training in schools, um, kids were starting to bust out the Pokemon cards again. And it was becoming a thing where they were like actively bringing them to school, trading, playing them. And it seemed like it was making a resurgence. And that would have been in like 2016, I think, 2015. So it's something that to a degree has withstood the test of time as well with mm-hmm. oh, yeah. various bits Nothing of marketing. But yeah, we like, we had a, a period where it just kind of, it was there, but it had dropped off in popularity. And then I think, X and Y was the one that brought me back in for a game. I really enjoyed all the changes they'd made. But yeah, it's something that's kind of still in the background. I, I mean, I haven't bothered getting the Switch one because again, it's just, I, it's way beyond the point where I'm interested anymore. There's too many of them But now. it's based in England, man. It's your home. It is. I don't, I don't want to see like top hat wheezing. It's so, pretty good. It, it's just not my thing anymore. I just don't have the time for it, but it's going to always be one of those games to me that it was like, it was also probably one of the first games I remember where it was like near impossible to actually find a copy if you didn't have it within the launch window. Like that thing just sold like hotcakes. It was just gone everywhere. Because yep. I remember my brother got blue for Christmas and then I couldn't find red so i actually had to wait until yellow was released and then i actually got yellow with my talking pikachu that pika p (laughs) so what about you cut did you get big into it because i know you just said that you didn't have a game boy so what was your like take on when it was going on no honestly i didn't get into i don't know i think some of our conversation with gaming has to do with our ages right and our generation and so i think my uh my teen years wasn't uh pokemon it wasn't a thing so i didn't get into it and then really six years ago what was it now maybe less than that four or five years ago when pokemon mobile came out on our phones um that was really Yeah, Pokemon Go was my first time, you know, into the Pokemon like experience. Other than the yellow Pokemon, I didn't know any of the other names or the other, you know, monsters or whatever you call them. And so, but I played the crap out of that game. I was a youth pastor at the time. And what I think was phenomenal about that game and the effect of it was you got all these American teenagers who their parents are always bitching about how they're playing video games all day and sitting in their dark basement. It literally got them out of their house and with other kids, other friends, and they would have to go to locations to do the pokey stops and, you know, gather up, you know, trap the monsters and stuff. So for me, I remember a few summer nights where I was out till one o'clock at night and there is literally in this park, you know, 50, 60, a hundred kids 
uh, teenage kids out playing this game, like to the point where the police would come and be like, all right, you guys got to go home. But that was like, I forget what summer it was, but it was like the summer of Pokemon here. And just, you know, kids are plugging their phones into those battery uh, extended battery packs. And it was yeah. great for me. Cause I'm like, dude, I'm spending time with students. We're getting some, uh, exercise in and I'm learning a little bit about a new game and it's addictive, man. It's getting all those collecting. It's, it's, to me, it's one of those games that you're, co- the whole point is collecting. You're collecting things, you're collecting power-ups, you're getting ultimately trapping these monsters to say, all, all for what? So you could say, I trapped a monster. Like the whole goal is to have all of them, right? To get as many as you can. And then you trade them with your friends. That was the next version where you could pass them and, you know, fight. The other thing was fighting for the, what did they call those? Um, the gyms. Po- oh, the gyms. Yeah. Where it was Gym like stuff. somebody, you know, your team, you were immediately assigned a team, red, yellow, blue, whatever it was. And so you could go to a physical location and so-and-so's team owns this location and you could go there and challenge them. If the three of you could beat their three top guys, you could take over the location and have basically like uh, bragging rights that you own that location. So that was a lot of fun. I would say as far as mobile games go, it was definitely one of the most played and exciting um, seasons was playing Pokemon Go. But yeah, back to the Game Boy. I, I didn't have a Game Boy. I think I had the Game Boy, one of the DSs. It might even have been like the second generation. I played uh, Grand Theft Auto Chinatown on that. That was oh, yeah. literally the only reason why I got it, I think. But aside from that, I didn't really get into the Game Boys. I think it was just because I was cheap and I was focused on my, you know, game station at home or my game, my console at home. No, that was fair enough. Uh, Not everyone had one. So, yeah, that's good. I mean, um, I think that's all there is to say on that. So swiftly moving on to you, Blake. Yeah, so I also had a pretty hard time with this because I couldn't. Think, I could think of certain games, but I think because Kurt chose Mario Bros. 3, I was like, oh, damn, I'm not really sure what I could choose. So, in a sense, I kind of cheaped out where I chose the game, which I think is a shining example of a retro game, but also, I think more importantly, it's more the legacy of the game and what it kind of set for the future of all gaming. So, I chose uh, Street Fighter 2. I felt yeah. Street Fighter 2 was kind of one of the most quintessential games of any retro library. Whether you Definitely. like fighting games or don't like fighting games, Street Fighter 2 was a phenomenon. I mean, it was huge in consoles. It was huge when it was in the arcade. Um, and then what it did for games following. You know, I'm a huge fan of, like, King of Fighters. I'm a big fan of uh, Mortal Kombat. But you know what? Like, I believe Fatal Fury came out around the same time as Street Fighter, which is, like, the forefather of King of Fighters. So, but not get too in depth into that. So we're focusing on Street Fighter, but you have to think that at this point, if you go anywhere around the world, uh, if it comes to Fatal Fury or King of Fighters, sadly, as much as I love those games, people don't really recognize the characters. I mean, when James and I discussed this before, when they released Terry Bogard, who was originally from Fatal Fury and was also in King of Fighters, into Smash Bros, so many people are like, "Who the hell is this guy? Where does he come from? Why does he look like a truck driver?" But he's old school SNK. And anyone who's like my age who grew up with fighting games, you know who Terry Bogart is. You know him. He's the lone wolf. He is like America's America gets in like a fighting game. Um, 
but you know the fact is street fighter is a big deal even like little kids you know if you play smash bros you you're gonna figure out who ryu is you're gonna learn out who ken is i mean who the hell doesn't know what a shoryuken is or hadoken is i mean street fighter 2 created these ideas it made fighting games a big ass staple for every household in all of like the west asia what have you i mean look at us now we're street fighter 5 there's evo which is a huge fighting game tournament every single thing regarding fighting games has a lot to say thank you to the street fighter 2 what they did for like everybody it's just kind of amazing to think that such a culture and such a genre was essentially you know has so much to say thank you to i guess for street fighter 2 and even nowadays man there's an arcade not really arcade it's like a bar slash arcade in downtown la called 82 um now i know you two probably have never heard of this or ever been there but anyways downtown la there's a place called the arts district and they have a warehouse called 82 and 82 only carries like retro arcades and they have a secondary warehouse which has only pinball machines now what makes 82 really fucking cool is they got an old school super street fighter 2 machine we're talking about super street fighter 2 not champion edition not og street fighter 2 or vanilla and they put that shit on big screen. So if you're fighting people, that shit's on big screen. Everyone can watch it right above the bar. And anyone can challenge you. And it's OG, you know, arcade rules. Pop down your quarter. That's your next in line to play. And when I went there, uh, just like a few months back, me and my friend were playing against a bunch of different people. I did fairly well. And I remember I beat some dude who I think like had like a 10 win streak. And he was like, oh, dude, I'm going to spot you a beer. I was like, that was a good match. And it was one of those things just like, man, even being in like my, you know, mid thirties, like that was a big deal. Like, damn, I can't believe even nowadays people like appreciate the skill at that game. You can still have a community around it. So yeah, I, I really think Street Fighter 2 is one of those games that so great. Even nowadays, looking back on it, so much love, but uh, yeah, let me know what you guys think. I mean, yep. I was there with you. Like, um, it was a huge thing. Uh, I didn't really have the Super S, uh, the Super Nintendo immediately growing up, but it was one of those things that you were acutely aware of because it was everywhere. As I said, didn't really have arcades in England, but everybody knew what it was. And even if you didn't know what the game was itself, you recognized the character Ryu because he became such a large icon of that game. And um, yeah, it was just one of those things where uh anyone who had it we'd spend like an afternoon playing it uh there were so many things that you take for granted now and a lot of things that came out of that game were accidental weren't they like the combo canceling like being able to stop one move and go directly into another that was a, a programming error but because people liked it so much they kept it in and built off it and it's a mechanic that exists to this day like being able to cancel out of one move into another to mix things yeah. up and confuse your opponent. It's uh, just a fantastic um, evolution from the first one. I mean, you look at the first game and it is a wonder that that game got a sequel because the first game was not good. I, d- I don't care what anyone says. It was oh, uh, the awful. original Street Fighter. Yeah, the original Street yeah, the original Fighter. Like, horrible. The most interesting part about the original Street Fighter was the big button arcade machine where you actually had to punch the push and the kick button to get them to work. And they had like these huge rubber buttons on them that you actually had to hit to get them to the move to come out. But it was awful. And it's 
so incredible to see them go like, oh, okay, we need to change something. And they made such a drastic change that if the characters of Ken and Ryu weren't in it, it's barely even recognizable as the same game anymore. Yeah. Hmm. Have I never heard? played it. Yeah, I never played it on console, but I did play it in arcade. Um, there's an arcade here, kind of similar in a way to what you were saying in LA. We have one here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is home to uh, University of Michigan and about 20 minutes from my house. And there's a place there called Pinball Pete's. And this is a retro gaming arcade that goes back, gosh, I'd have to look it up, but it's been there a long time from from my memory. And so um, similarly, they have a lot of older, older games there. And that's, I think, probably the place that I first played Street Fighter. I shared in the last podcast, your guys' last episode, I'm honestly not much of a fighter gamer. It just wasn't my genre. But um, yeah, I definitely did some button smashing on Street Fighter 2 at the arcade. But um, I was going to ask you, uh, Blake, do you, you said it was kind of a precursor to a lot of other games. Would you say that Street Fighter 2 was a precursor to Mortal Kombat? Because I look at For some sure. of those. Yeah, because I, I definitely played a bunch of that. I have a friend that's his by far his favorite game. And I just feel like there's a lot of similarities, just the most basic mechanics and the look and the, you know, the different places you're fighting and the the. Uh, knockout uh, meter or whatever you call it at the top like there to me it looks a lot like Mortal Kombat aside from maybe the special moves especially the graphic ones in Mortal Kombat where you're like ripping somebody's head off and stuff but yeah so I just wondered if if you would connect those two or not really oh yeah connected for sure but you know Street Fighter 2 came out way before Mortal Kombat did and you know I'll be honest when Mortal Kombat first came out the attraction was always that like blood and gore, but I'll, I can always say this. My biggest issue with Mortal Kombat was um, I always felt like, well, nowadays it's a bit different, but we're talking about old school. Back when it was Mortal Kombat 1, right. Mortal Kombat 2, I always felt like it played like a weak sauce version of uh, Street Fighter 2. Like there was a block button, which made no sense to me. Why am I not holding back to block? Like that's ridiculous. And you hold a block button. And now I don't know mm-hmm. if you recall this, but the button setup for Mortal Kombat was like an X shape. So the block yeah. button was in the middle. And I couldn't stand it. I was like, what the hell is this setup? You know, Street Fighter was three buttons on top, three buttons on bottom. It made sense. But like mm-hmm. Mortal Kombat was this weird X. I was like, how, how the hell do I work this thing? It was like just looking at something. It was confusing. And it just didn't play that smooth. Like it looked cool, but it just didn't really feel good. And like the supers in it didn't really feel like, I don't know how to say it, like, I didn't feel good doing the supers. Just like it was like with Scorpion, you always do like get over here, Sub Zero, just freeze. That's Come all you here. Did. Yeah, get over here. <laughs> but you know, at least one of you played Street Fighter. Like man, it's like Hadouken, Shoryuken, Tatsumaki Senku Kyaku. Like you do all these things, and you hear the words, and kids would know them. It was more fun. Like you just know, everyone just knows like get over here, and that was it. No one remembered anything else. Yeah, Luke King's yeah, like kid, like oh no 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 no. Excuse me. <laughs> That's it. Uh, if there's one noise that sums up that entire game it's whoopsie oh whoopsie yeah yeah oh yeah and toasty you, toasty you, you screw up the uppercut and it's like whoopsie yeah i thought i thought whoopsie is when like you do the sweep kick or whatever uh it can happen for a bunch of different things i think if you swing for an uppercut and miss and then someone lands one on you yeah, it will yeah, come out it. at that point as well uh hmm. interesting yeah, it's uh 
that's three strong contenders for retro games. I mean, all of those kind of fall into what I would classify as retro games as well as when I was at university, I did uh, 3D modeling and animation for games as my degree. And just prior to me starting, it was the last year where they still, for some strange reason, required a dissertation. So now I don't think those courses require dissertations because no games company is going to care what your dissertation was based on. They're going to care about your portfolio. And because the dissertation was on its way out, my, uh, I guess my lecturer, my professor, whatever, he was very flexible with the ideas of what you wanted your dissertation to be on. And I had no idea what I wanted to write apart from the fact that I was really interested in retro games. So I did a thesis on what makes a retro game, Hmm. like a a 60 page document on what things need to be present in order for a person to consider that game retro. Interesting. So that was good fun, but it was a complete waste of time and I'd rather have spent it doing other uh, 3D projects, but it exposed me to a lot more retro things and it definitely got me into the retro gaming magazine that we have in England, which I later like wrote a few guest articles for and they got published. So that was fun. But uh, this guy published author. Mm. I know, right? (laughs) Double page spread as well, baby. (laughs) So, but yeah, it was an interesting thing to do because obviously you go six doors down to a different room in the university and it would be like, someone is doing something worthwhile, like a thesis on English literature or uh, studying for their medical degree. And then I'll walk in. I'll be like, what do you think makes a game truly retro? Tell me your thoughts. (laughs) So that was interesting, but it boiled down to basically a period of time. People said that a game had to be more than 10 years old for them to even start to consider it being retro. And then sound and visuals played a heavy part in it that if it didn't look the part and didn't sound the part it didn't count but it could play any way it wanted because i think uh what was the one of the first big ones that was it uh retro city rampage Mm. it was like a gta type clone but it was kind of under the guise of uh 16-bit graphics was the pinnacle of evolution for graphical technology it didn't go anywhere but gameplay continued to advance so it had like wall cover all the vehicle stealing stuff item management stats but the visuals remained as if they were on the super nintendo so that was kind of one of the first big ones that was like crowdfunded to sort of kind of have that in big indie style game i guess so it was interesting to see that people were willing to forgive how a game like sort of kind of played as long as it was over 10 years old and kind of looked and sounded the part. Mm. So that was a little interesting thing that I found out, but I guess we've exhausted the retro side of things. Uh, So it is time for Kurt to bestow us with a modern game that he feels has left its impact or is as Blake put it, the quintessential example of what a modern game should or is be there with it 
<laughs> You're killing well, it. <laughs> well said, James. Well said. Um, yeah, for me, I first want to just start by saying what a journey. Like just the conversation we're having, how games have evolved from the Super Mario 3, Pokemon, and Street Fighter 2, like the games that we're going to talk about now, just thinking of the progression graphically, sound-wise, the length of the game, the experience that we have, it's just, to me, mind-blowing and brings out the little boy in me all over again because I love that we're living in a day and age where games are where they are and so i am definitely the type that i want to be on the bleeding edge i love the latest and greatest i'm currently playing the last of us 2 as i mentioned in our last episode as well um but for me when i thought of the quintessential shining example of a modern game like i said my quick thought my first thing that came out of my mouth the tip of my tongue was gta 5 and those of you, again, listening to me thinking, wait a minute, is this the Christian guy, the cultured Christian podcast guy is saying GTA? Like GTA is all about drugs and the strip club, right? <laughs> but um, for me, why I'm saying this is because it is the first, in my opinion, truly open world um online game so when you think about how high speed internet so think about the timeline again there were previous open world games where people could come in and play games but it's really the first game where most of the world had high speed internet and so you had these massive lobbies of 30 people from around the world who could come in and share an experience you could play in los santos on this island and so for me, again, caveat, I'm talking about GTA 5 online. There still is a campaign, there's a story, and there's, it's fun for the most part. But what I'm talking about is the online experience. I literally lost count. I went back today and tried to find how many hours I sunk into this game. But it only shows, see, I played it twice. I played it on the disc that I bought years ago. And then I recently downloaded it again because it was on sale for like 15 bucks and a few of my friends wanted to play it. I was like, all right, I'll download it. And so I played it again. So it's only showing the most recent hours that I played it. So I literally have lost count of how much time. But here's why I love it. And here's why I think it's, you know, kind of what you were saying with Street Fighter 2. To me, uh, GTA 5 is a prelude to... Uh, the oasis if you guys have seen ready player one the whole vr thing you know where people eventually are going to put on a headset and we're going to be transported to the oasis or to another world and again share experiences with each other and this is the thing i keep saying because for me there's aspects of it that are fun but at the end of the day it's like you're playing a game with your friends. You could skydive. You could play tennis. You could play golf. You could drive a boat. You could drive an airplane. You could drive a helicopter. You could run people over. You could go to a strip club, although I don't think on online there's any nudity. It's to, it, I think it's only in the campaign or the storyline. But the whole idea, the whole point I'm saying is it's, it's free choice. It's whatever you want to do. And guys my age, we'd get on there and we would play and just talk. We'd talk about our week. We'd talk about our day. We'd, 
you know, just shoot the breeze in there. But the shared experience was this online world where you could do basically whatever you want. You could trick out your car. You could buy a new house. You could buy a rich apartment up on, you know, the side of the mountain. So, um, yeah. And if you guys are following PS5, they, you know, did their announcement. They showed off their hardware and it was kind of a letdown. I would say that the Rockstar Games made an announcement and everybody was on the edge of their seats. They're like, awesome. GTA 6 is coming. Hell yeah. And they announced that GTA 5 will be on PS5. And so there's so many memes and a bunch of, you know, online conversation about like they are really milking it because I can't can you guys think of a game that has been on three consoles so it started in September 2013 on PlayStation 3 then it went to PlayStation 4 and it's going to be on PlayStation 5 they're going to supposedly update it in some way shape or form but they are definitely milking it for more and more money but I think and this is the reason why I picked it there's something there, right? It's not just that they want to make money. I think people find a relational um, connection there that you go into the space and play with people from around the world. It reminds me of PlayStation Home. Are you guys familiar with that? Yeah, I yeah. remember that. Yeah, so PlayStation Home, again, those of you who haven't played it or remember, it was like on your PlayStation and you go into the space and you have an avatar and you you can buy a house and you can walk around and there's other people in there that you could chat with. I don't think it was voice chat, it was text chat. Um, but it's just, again, this experience where, yeah, there's a lot of bullies and racist comments and, and, you know, just like our world, it can be a very negative space and a lot of bad things can happen. The wheels can be thrown off, but the flip side of that is also true. There's places where you can make friendships, you can connect with people that, uh, you would have never been connected with because it's voice chat or you're in a shared environment. So yeah, that's kind of my long-winded answer, but I've got a lot of fun gaming nights with friends and new, make new friends on there. And I think, again, that is by and far the precursor to the Oasis and true VR. I mean, VR exists right now, but I think the VR that I want to live in is truly immersive that you can just go into a new world and basically live and breathe and do different things. I'm not into these shooters and different things that, you know, PlayStation VR. I just think it's kind of silly. I like the idea of the Oasis where you're fully in some new world and living a life. So what do you guys think about GTA five? Uh, well, um, you go for first me. Chance. Yeah. Okay. Uh, for me, I didn't really touch the campaign. Uh, I don't get on too well with open world games. I always get sidetracked and then I get bored of them. Mm. But yeah, GTA Online, the few times that I did play 5 online, I thought it was really good fun. Like, um, It's always fun, obviously, to like grab a bus and smash it around town and load up <laughs> all your friends onto it and go dicking about. But the one thing that pulled me in the most was the heists. I liked this idea of there being kind of these not preset missions. They had preset goals, but how you went about it was almost up to you. Yeah. I did like the idea of these missions that ranged from like knocking off a small safety deposit box place to 
rescuing like a convict and like stealing an airplane and things like that. I thought those are really creative sort of ways to get people to have an immersive experience together where it wasn't just get to the most kills before the other team or race to the end of this point. There were like goals and objectives and you could set up traps, decide who was going to do what, uh, how much money you were going to invest in different parts of the heist. And it was really good. Now, my one detract from that is because there are no load times online and it is a huge kind of breathing world, when something goes wrong, we are still at that point where it will kick you out of the game and then you have to sit around for, I mean, I remember sitting around 15, 20 minutes waiting to get things set back up again to hope that you'll get a game if you don't go in there with like a preset group of friends. And I thought I spent a large amount of time sitting around waiting for people to join up so that I could play because I I got the game way after its heyday and all my friends had already got bored of it. So I was going in there trying to find the odd person online to play with. And my experience was one of, I spent more time staring at menus than I did actually playing the game. But those few moments where I did get in there and do some of the crazy activities like ramping the cars off things and trying to get them to land on platforms with parachutes and stuff mm-hmm. like that. It was stupid good fun. Yep. And I really enjoyed myself. Now you bring up a good point. I would say there is a huge asterisk uh, with the online play because so much of it is dependent upon the lobby that you're in. You, you've nailed it. You've nailed it. There's times where you go in there and there's four people in your lobby. There's times where you get in there and there's 30 people in the lobby, but there's four kids who are dominating on the microphone and they're just, you know, 12 year olds who are yelling with their prepubescent uh, voices, <laughs> screaming at people, calling them whatever term, uh, just to get that rise out of people. And so, yes, it is very dependent on the time of day, the lobby you get into. I mean, that's anything in life, right? I mean, you can walk into any community and there's, it depends on who's there and who's showing up. So I, I relate to that. I refresh, you know, what is it? Uh, leave lobby or find new session. Definitely, uh, smash that button a lot of times on a Friday night because there is some crappy lobbies out there. But generally, if you stick it out, you know, some of those smaller lobbies, you come in and you're the good natured guy who's trying to play and have fun. Those people are magnets. You're going to be drawn to each other where the people who are just there to bully and be idiots, um, they kind of draw those people to themselves, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, I think, so uh, my last point would be, I think so much of that was kind of fixed just because of the platform I chose. Obviously a console, most people get bought consoles for Christmas. They're not super expensive after they've been out for a while. Whereas I feel if you play it on a PC and you turn off cross compatibility, there is kind of like a gatekeeping aspect to it because not many people the average person doesn't build a gaming PC. They don't play their games on a PC. Mm -hmm. They would, they're more like yourself where they would like the plug and play aspect of it. Well, that's, yeah. I was just going to say you're you're going into a whole new area with GTA five, which is the PC, the mods. You know, I have a friend who like is really into this uh, role playing 
I never got into that because I'm on PlayStation. Oh, the GTA role playing mod. Yeah, yeah. Have you guys seen any of that stuff on Twitch? Yep. It's insane. Yeah. People, people are literally living like alternate lives. They're being policemen or they're being some whatever golfer or something. Like, it's really like I'm forgetting the term. It's role playing fits, but there's another term where you're playing mm, someone. Larping or something. Larping. That's it. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, they're <laughs> literally larping in a virtual world and they'll do that for like eight nine hours a day dude like they will just live in that world so that's a that's a whole nother thing that i'm not really i'm talking about console and that yep. thing but yeah so playing the i've heard the playstation or i'm sorry the pc version can get really uh crazy some of the different things because you can mod it to your heart's content yeah yeah so yeah that's my thoughts i, I know he'll explain it himself but i know blake had a he was coming at it from a purely game sort of angle weren't you when you played it i never played online period yeah. i've never played online i have no clue how it plays online and i'll be honest i don't really care how it plays online i i picked up gta like og vanilla gta back in the day and i'll be honest on playstation 2 gta 3 was it playstation 2 that yeah playstation yep. 2 had gta 3 the ship blew my mind like, I, I'm a huge sandbox gamer. I fucking love them to death. Uh, GTA 3 was great. I've, uh, compl- like, 100% of that game entirely. I've collected all the secrets in that game. I've done all the missions. I was really big into that game. Um, so then I got, play- then I got uh, what is it, GTA 4. I'll be honest, I didn't like GTA 4. I didn't see the appeal. I felt the driving mechanics were awful. The fighting mechanics were bad. Shooting didn't really feel good. And no offense, I didn't really want to play New York again. I know there was like San Andreas and there was Vice City. I played Vice City. San Andreas was kind of like at the point where I wasn't really interested in GTA anymore. So I didn't really get into it. I didn't really care. So GTA 5 was the first time I got to play like Los Santos. And being in from LA, I think my the biggest fascination for the game for me was that as soon as I got a car, I drove around the whole entire area being like, oh man, I know what this is. I know what this is. And I'd be like, this is wrong or this is right. Because in the game, to me, I guess, yeah, I mean, I'm super biased. The fact that I could go drive over to Santa Monica, I could be in Hollywood, I could go towards, you know, Coachella Valley and Palm Springs, check out, you know, Sandy Shore is based on like Coachella Valley and Palm Springs, has a little bit of uh, Sultan Sea, which is a large kind of lake area. So for me, you know, it was so close to home where I was like, I got kind of more enveloped in just the environment itself, wanting to explore like my own home and seeing it in a digital world. Because the only other game, that had LA was like LA Noir. Other than that, we're always in New York. And I'll be honest, I'm not interested in playing New York. <laughs> New York's been played a thousand times. But LA, you know, it, it's done here and there, but not that often. So that was pretty much the biggest deal to me. And then I like the story of it. I love the dialogue. Uh, but like James, I didn't play GTA 5 until last year. So I came so late into the game. And by the time that uh, James and some of our other friends were playing the game, I was pretty much on the opinion of like, I need to beat the campaign first before I play online because I just want to finish off the game. And by the time I finished the campaign, they weren't playing anymore. So I was like, all right, whatever. Not like I'm interested in playing online anyway. So I don't know. Late, I think GTA late 5 to is the great, game. But... Late to the game yeah. would be a good gaming podcast title. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I, especially for me, when it comes to modern games, I'm pretty late to it. I, I play it at such a later date where usually what's going on doesn't impact me anymore. You know, like when the latest and greatest movie comes out, everyone's talking about it. I'll maybe watch that movie like five years later. Like children, 
this is off topic, but Children of Men, for example, I remember when that came out, everyone was talking about it. And I really wanted to see the movie, but I knew the hype would kill it for me. So I watched that movie about almost 10 years later because I was like, I don't want there anything, any hype surrounding it to alter my experience of the film. So I watched like 10 years later and I had no clue. I forgot all about the hype. And I love the movie, but I'm kind of like that person. If there's too much hype, I have to step away for a long time to jump back in or I'm just going to automatically be, be disappointed or I'm just going to judge it too hard. Mm. So that was me and GTA five. So yeah, cool campaign online. No clue. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so, so yeah, brings us to James. Yeah, so for me, I like I thought long and hard about this, and again, it was there were some obvious choices. Like it would have been easy to say The Last of Us because of its impact mm. on storytelling. It would have been easy to say things like um, I don't know, uh, The Walking Dead again for it taking like a concept that had kind of died and making a game solely out of a storytelling experience. Uh, GTA 3, because of its impact on open world gaming. But for me, I I wanted something that kind of not only had left an impact, but left an impact on me. And I'm kind of going to cheat a little bit because the mod, most of the modern versions of this game are absolute garbage. And the only impact they make is on the bottom of the toilet bowl before you flush them. (laughs) Um, Silent Hill. Before Silent Hill came around, the idea of a survival horror or horror game was mostly dominated by Resident Evil. Of Even though that game was slow-paced and it was kind of creepy and um, like uh, the music and the atmosphere kind of steadied it a bit, it was still, in my mind, very much a, an American inspired creation of the american kind of slasher type horror style movie where it was still big strong man with gun shoot bad thing dead and to me that kind of took away a lot of the horror aspect and then you had the silent hill games come in and kind of they still had the combat but they were coming at it from a clunky how would the average layman deal with this And Silent Hill kind of, as a franchise, introduced the idea of psychological horror, of the scariest thing that we can think of is different for each person. So I know this one is kind of bordering, but like uh, Silent Hill 2 kind of played with the idea of everybody sees Silent Hill differently. And that came as one of the biggest turning points for me where it's like, oh, I wonder what this person sees and this person sees. And it was one of those few games that never pulled back the curtain. It didn't show you what they saw. It didn't fully explain itself. And that had a large impact on me. And I guess for a modern version of it, uh, did you guys, I know you didn't, Blake, show on the PS4, but Kurt, did you play PT? Oh my God, yes. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because that... That's my only connection to Silent Hill. I never played Silent yep. Hill, but I played PT. So PT was a huge return to form. There was, you would draw, obviously PT stands for playable teaser. So it wasn't, we don't know anymore if that was going to be the full game, if that's how it would have played. And unfortunately now we'll never know. But um, it was a true return to form where for a good 
I don't know, like 15 to 30 minutes, depending on how slow you were, nothing actually happens in that game. Mm. You get a, a few background noises, uh, a few little text drops or some uh, environmental storytelling through the radio or the pictures on the walls, but nothing happens. And there was no clear indicator as to there is a ghost that follows you around called Lisa. There was no real clear indicator as to when and how she would show up other than a few pre-scripted events where she would like close a door or she'd be looking down on you from the balcony or staring at you through a window. When she actually follows you around the hall, there is no idea when she is actually going to strike. Mm. And I played that game for probably about three or four hours trying to finish it. And it never at any point ventured over into annoying when I got killed. It was always something that made me jump and terrified the ever-loving shit out of me because you <laughs> didn't know when it was going to come. And sometimes the music stinger would come, her breathing would be right behind you, you turn around and nothing. Mm. And then you turn around again five minutes later and she'd jump you. So it was one of those games that just continually played with your expectations. And then there were parts where it completely went off the rails into like the colors of the room were different. The pictures were moving and then you'd open the door and it reset again. Yeah. And you had no idea what was going on. And there was even, I think a part where you're collecting the pieces of the picture to get out. Mm. One of them is like hidden in the menu. Like you pause the game and you're not even safe in the menu. Like some creepy stuff will happen when you pause the game as well. Like it will mess with the menu screen. And to me, as a franchise, when it gets it right, Silent Hill has always been at the forefront of challenging what a horror game is. And we owe so much to that game for things like that. Like without Silent Hill, there's no amnesia. Uh, I just bought a game recently after Seam Summer Sale called uh, Lost in Vivo, which again owes a lot to Silent Hill. Um, some of the later Resident Evil games where they slowed it back down, again, they owe a lot to PT. Um, yeah, so, uh, Clock Tower. So many different games have adopted Silent Hill's formula of slowing things down and telling a story through the environment and sometimes not having the big payoff. I mean, one of the old games, uh, the second one again, there was a part where the main character is going to reach his hand into a hole to grab something, and if it was a standard horror game, something would grab his arm and yank him into the wall, and he'd scream, and then nothing would happen. In this game, he puts his hand into the hole, he clearly feels something that he doesn't like and recoils, and then he timidly puts his hand back in again and simply pulls out a key and then it's never spoken of again mm. and it's just that idea of subverting expectations and sometimes there is no payoff so you don't know when mm. it's coming and that to me is infinitely more terrifying than saying oh for example nemesis is chasing you around and he could appear at any time great i've seen him i know what he is he doesn't scare me anymore he just annoys me so to me, it would be Silent Hill as a franchise and for what it's done for the horror game community. Hmm. <clears throat> yeah, it's good. I agree with you that even extending into movies, I feel like the horror genre always does better 
when they're creating it's great it's it's harder writing but they create images that you never see if that makes sense that you're you're creating it in your mind you're filling in the blanks like i think of a great example of it going bad is the movie signs do you guys remember that movie way back when and to me that movie was amazing until you saw the alien and it looked like a teenage mutant ninja turtle and then i'm like are you kidding me that's the alien is a green looking guy that she's gonna hit with a baseball bat so i feel like that's again what you're saying with video games and i felt like that with pt is the horror the the thing that gets your heart racing is not really what you're seeing on the screen is so much as you're filling in the blanks in your head and you're starting to hear things in your ear which i highly recommend if you've never played that game play it with a headphone you know like there are certain games that if you don't have a headphone on you are missing a whole nother level of that game because if if you turn the lights out in your living room and you play at night with a headset on it's next level it's a totally different experience than if you just play it in a lit room with your speakers on your tv but um yeah there are a few games that have scared me like pt and it really is the jump scare but it's also building that it's building to that because of like you're saying there's a lot of moments where nothing happens so you kind of let your guard down a little bit you're like oh it's not really that big of a deal and then you turn a corner and it's like oh gosh you know something happens but that's where that brilliant writing and the pacing we haven't talked about pacing really good games have a certain level of emotional pacing to it that you you know what I mean? You're slowly building to a, cl- a crescendo, a climactic moment. And that's where the gaming, you know, Last of Us, you brought up The Last of Us is a great example of that. The writing and the way the story builds to where there's a moment where it just hits the fan and then you're like, whoa, you're there. You're there emotionally because of all that hard work that they did in the in the buildup. Yeah, I think. Uh, just quickly before we move on, like one of the films to me, it's like by no means like a classic film or anything. One that does that really well is the, the mist. Mm-hmm. Like you do not, you see bits of the creatures or mm-hmm. you get descriptions of them, but there are some that you see a part of them, then they disappear back off into the mist and you never see yep. them again. Yep. And it is that thing of, I've given you just enough to let your imagination run wild with it. And I'm not going to show you the rest of it. I mean, I think uh-huh. <clears throat> one of the monsters that attacks them first is when they're in the supermarket and that tentacle comes up through the gate. And yeah, I think its door. name, yeah, its name is literally something ridiculous. Like they call it in the movie, like the tentacle from planet X or something ridiculous. <laughs> and that is it. You only see that one tentacle they chop it off, it runs away, and then it's never spoken of again. You don't know what it was attached to, if that was the creature itself, and then that's it. It's done, it never comes back again. And it's just that idea of giving you just enough that your mind can latch on and create grow. I mean, that is essentially what H.P. Lovecraft built his entire career off. Giving you just enough and then going oh, I can't describe the rest because it's an unseen horror that will destroy your mind. So yeah. it allows your brain to just run wild. And I think Silent Hill did that. PT did that. 
because uh, the character design of the ghost, the things you find in the environment gives you just enough. And then you have to fill in the blanks yourself. And I think that's a fantastic way of doing storytelling that some people are just too terrified to do because they're like, oh, they're going to miss this genius point I made because their IQ is too low and I have to spell it out for them. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I only played Silent Hill 2. Silent Hill 2, mm. I'll be honest, I didn't really care. Uh, I grew up watching <sighs> horror movies. Yeah, didn't care. I think in general for me, more like I like horror movies, but I like horror movies which are kind of fun. Silent Hill goes back to one of one of my big things I harp on is gameplay. I thought the gameplay in Silent Hill was atrocious. I couldn't stand oh, it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh and it's for me, like my friend and I had this conversation years ago, like he loves Silent Hill, but his thing is that he likes atmosphere and story. So he's like, I can deal with that gameplay if the atmosphere and story are there. And I'm like, if there's no gameplay, I can't stand it. I don't care how good your story is. I can just go on Wikipedia and I can learn all about it. But I remember for the sake of my friends, I beat Silent Hill 2. I remember I specifically went for the dog ending because I was like, that seems <sighs> like the only redeemable part of the entire game was getting the dog ending which is, I don't know if you know about this, Kurt, it was uh, mm -hmm. Shiba Inu is actually controlling the whole entire story. So all these horrible things is because of the little dog who doesn't even speak. It just goes like, woof. And mm -hmm. it did all these horrible things. And when the main character finds it out, he like collapses, going like, no, we're being sad. And the dog just comes up, woofs, and then licks him in the face. And that's the end of the game. And as you see the credits rolling, it's just like a close-up picture of a Shiba Inu. Um, I think that was the only redeeming factor of the game for me. Because I just couldn't stand the gameplay. I was like, oh my god, that shit just slogged like nothing else. But uh, mm. yeah, then when PT came out, as James said, I don't, I don't have any consoles right now, so I never got to play it. I just heard everyone talk about it, and I saw footage of it. But I'll be honest, seeing footage of the game doesn't say much for me, because I didn't get to play it. I don't have the same feeling. It's more like just watching someone play a game. It's, it's a whatever feeling for me. I don't like watching people play games. Because I don't get any enjoyment out of it and I don't feel anything from it. It's just like, eh, I don't know, like nonsense. <laughs> just watching stuff happen. So I would yeah, like not... to play PT. Oh, go on. I was just going to say, you're not a fan of cutscenes. You've said that before. Ah, it depends on the games. Cutscenes are all right. But like, I guess this will segue into my game, but I'll be honest for people who don't know, I'm not much of a modern gamer. I'm not really mm. impressed by modern games for the most part because. As I said, I like gameplay a lot, and uh, I think a lot of times modern games, I think they're similar to all video games. You try and find some type of you know thing in which to sell, and that's kind of your focal point. And so that doesn't always mean gameplay has to be perfect. Gameplay can be, in a sense, not say broken, but it doesn't need to be perfected, which is why people will do like updates or companies will do updates to fix things. Like we spoke on your podcast, like Assassin's Creed, you can literally shit out a game which is like 50 percent complete but don't worry we're gonna update it with like two three gigabyte updates and everything's gonna be fine and i think for me that's kind of issues why i don't really care for modern gaming where i'm like the game should come out as perfect as you possibly can get it i get it nothing's perfect but i feel like that's part of it and then also if the gameplay isn't there and you have to support it with really good story and like yeah story's cool man but if the game isn't fun to play you're just not gonna like take me away out of my own life i still mm -hmm. feel like i'm still dealing with issues of my own life if i want to see a good story you know i can watch a movie i can watch a tv show and that's good enough for me so uh, i guess i'll segue into my game which is going to be controversial 
And yeah. many people might disagree with me on this one. And I'll be honest, I'm not even a huge fan of the game either. Uh, I chose Fortnite. And uh, there's a good uh, reason I why I chose gonna, Fortnite. I knew yeah. you were going to choose that. <laughs> but there's a good no, reason why I chose no, it. No, it is. I, can, I know exactly why you've chose it. Yeah. I chose Fortnite because it is truly the first game which is absolutely cross-platform. It's yeah. been on PlayStation 4, Xbox One, Switch, iOS. That means iPhone, iPad, uh, iPod. That's fucking crazy. Mac OS, Windows, Android, PlayStation 5, Xbox Series X. And supposedly you can get it to run on Linux. I don't know if that's true. It could be all BS. Anyways, that's pretty ridiculous. I've been on trains and I've seen kids playing on their phone. Uh, my friend, for example, back in uh, the States, uh, during quarantine, his son was staying at his mom's house. And they were able to communicate because he was playing Fortnite on his PlayStation 4 while his son was playing Fortnite on uh, an iPad. And I was like, mm. that's ridiculous that nowadays people can actually game like that. I mean, I've heard kids on the train talking about how like, oh, their mom took away their, you know, whatever game console. But it's cool because they can play Fortnite on their I was the iPod. And I was like, wait, what? You can play it on an iPod? Like the latest iPod, the touch, <laughs> which just blows my mind. Like people even own that shit. But the fact that you can be like, oh, my mom took this away, but she doesn't know I can play it on my iPod. That's retarded to me. That's so insane that someone could just be like, I can play on anything. Granted, I get it. Games like Doom came out way before. And Doom's, you can play something like a T980 or whatever it's called, calculator. You know, those things you yeah. use in school for graphing. You can play Doom on some printers, which is ridiculous. But as a modern day game, Fortnite, you can do anything. Nothing could kind of stop you from playing that game. You can chat to anybody when playing it. And the gameplay is, you know, jump in, jump out. Whether you like it, whether you dislike it, doesn't matter. You can play it. Anyone can get it. It's free. And then, you know, in terms of like a freemium game, oh, dude, they know how to market that game. So many kids have just wasted thousands of dollars off their parents' credit card. It's pretty smart. And on top of that, I was just reading that, you know, Epic, who makes the game, they've created their Epic online service SDK which I guess they're going to be selling to other companies so other companies can do the same cross-platforming in the future. So, you know, whether you like Fortnite or not, the fact that other game companies might be able to use this, you know, software development kit or SDK to open up other games to any platform, that's pretty revolutionary. It means that even though you might have a PlayStation 4 or PlayStation 5 and I have a PC and James has a PC as well, we could all play the same game probably within the next year or two that's so awesome you're, that you're telling me essential part that you're a mac and i'm a pc and we can play together you can oh my goodness we can those be commercials friends. those commercials lied to me in the like early millennium well now people are a little bit more uh, sophisticated they're more urbane <laughs> anyway funny so yeah that's what that's why I chose the game. Not so much yep. that I think the gameplay is absolutely astounding, but I think what it will do for the future of gaming is a big deal. To be honest, I was also thinking about choosing, um, what is it, Valve's Alex. Not that I've actually oh, yeah. fully played the game, but I think that's also a pretty revolutionary game. It's the first truly uh, good VR game that I've actually ever played. But being that VR is still pretty early and it's so expensive, I can't say it's going to be like, the boom thing that everyone's going to want to own and play, but Fortnite, it, it's the layman's game, man. Anyone can play it any age, any system. 
Okay, can't so argue with the results. I agree with you in that it has done a lot for cross-platform uh, compatibility and showing what a gaming system means to people now. Like, uh, it's kind of validated mobile phone gaming. However, I believe that game has also brought about one of the biggest curses. And I know it's possibly not solely responsible for it, but it is definitely one of the main offenders is microtransactions and loot boxes. Oh, they're horrible. But the fact is they're now essentially part of so many online games, whether we like it or not. Mm. So you are correct that Fortnite is like definitely a quintessential uh, look into what a modern game is and how it leaves its impact. But I think that opens up another interesting point of that's not always a positive impact. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that people were at EA's throat finally for Star Wars Battlefront 2 because of the egregious way that they'd used microtransactions that somebody tallied it up. You'd have had to have played for something. I'm probably going to get this wrong, but it was like hundreds of hours to unlock all the characters in the game. Or but wasn't paid... the difference? Go on. Uh, I was going to say, or you paid them the money to pump chances into what is essentially a slot machine. So gambling for kids at a chance to pay out with the thing that you wanted. And they integrated it into the gameplay as well. That if you got a certain item, it broke the balance. Now I know Fortnite doesn't do that. It's purely cosmetic, mm. but they are responsible for the, Oh, if you like keep playing this game over and over and over, you will get a loot box or you can give us money and we'll just give you what's inside of it. Well, yeah, I, I was think... going to cut you off essentially and say like, yeah, uh, what EA did, I think was a lot worse than what Epic is. Yeah, yeah. If you need to pay money to actually play the game, that's mm -hmm. fucked. But if it's just all cosmetic, whether you like it or don't like it, we played Fortnite for a short time and we never paid any money. You can still enjoy the game the exact same way and you don't need to pay any money whatsoever. So in that sense, I don't really think it's that bad. And I think any game is going to be doing that. I mean, even Overwatch, which is also another big one, you can pay money or you can just play the game and do it. Street Fighter Five, Street Fighter Four, you could just get play online, get was a fighter credit. So you can buy it and just get stuff like that, but it takes tons of time. And if people rage quit you, you don't get that fighting credit. But if you pay money, you can just get it automatically. So when you think yeah. about it, so many modern games use that. Sorry, Kurt, I kind of cut you off. No, I think I'm kind of going to say the same thing you're saying, Blake. And I think, you know, I played it for three years. It's easily the game that I have deleted and reinstalled the most. I, I think it's been five times because it really does have that staying power. The other thing you didn't really say is it's Epic is committed to keeping it fresh. There's always a new map. There's a new reason to log back in. There's always a reason to return to Fortnite, even if you've kind of went away from it. So I think them keeping it fresh is revolutionary. Um, my comment on the microtransaction is I think you're, you're spot on, is I think the difference is Fortnite has had a principle and they've stuck by it since day one that all of the purchases do not affect gameplay. So you don't buy some killer rocket launcher that makes you a great player you just buy a new umbrella to jump out of the plane with or a new outfit but it's also brilliant because it plays upon a psychological principle which is all these teens that are in there 
they get made fun of and shamed if they're using an original skin. So they're the ones going to their mom, tugging on their mom's, you know, purse saying, Hey, I need money. I need V bucks so I can buy the latest skin. Right. And so you multiply that out. What's genius about it is making it free to play. You get the masses showing up. Everybody showed up to that game. It's on every platform. It's free to play. So you get millions of people. We all showed up. But then you get a small percentage of the millions who say, mommy, I need some money or you're rich, whatever. And you're like, I'm going to buy every skin. And so they made millions on that. And I think that is a genius. um, That is a genius and it's it's a revolutionary thing because it's relatively new to gaming, right? When I play The Last of Us, I spend 60 bucks and I play a 60 hour game or whatever it is. And then I return it to GameStop. Maybe I get some money back. But with place with uh, Fortnite, it it can last forever in the sense that you know you're you're just going to keep drawing it out and keep milking it for money. And like I said, you you guys said you don't have to pay. You can still play. So yeah, that's well, definitely a good game to have in the mix. I was definitely curious about it, and uh, I just pulled up some numbers. In 2018, August, they reported that there were 78.3 million active players and the record number being when it dropped in South Korea, there were 8.3 million concurrent players at one point. Wow. How much money have they made? Has it stated? God knows. Let me check. Uh, Fortnite. Is it Fortnite money made? (laughs) Fortnite Uh, money made. Money, money, money. Billions of dollars. Um... It, they reported it made $2.4 billion in 2018. Not surprised by that all at right. all. Well, well, I just searched in my game, my modern game pick wins. GTA is the most profitable game of all time with $6 yep. billion, dollars, billion, B, $6 billion in <laughs> revenue. Is that not the insane? The GTA 5 or the GTA series? GTA 5. One Online. game, six years, GTA 5. Because everybody's buying, again, that game, you could argue there is there is some advantage to having a faster car, having, you know, you can buy weapons, right? You're buying, you're buying money in-game that then you can use to buy things that give you an advantage in online. So that is more of a loot box, I would say, kind of thing. Because people with money do have an advantage online. But um, yeah, that's some crazy money, man. Six billion bucks just from online. Insane. Yep. But you also reinforce what we're talking about, that modern games, you brought up an online game, I brought up an online game. That's kind of, I think, the point. I think that's where yeah. we're going. I oh, think yeah. that's, I don't want to keep restating it, but dude, Ready Player One, man, the Oasis, they're going to hand out eventually some company like Google, Facebook, whoever is there when this thing launches, they're going to give you a, a headset. They're going to say, here, go into this world, and then we're going to make it there worthwhile because we're going to buy all this stuff in the virtual world. You'll have to buy an avatar, you'll buy a home, you'll buy a car, you'll buy vacations. But I definitely think the hardware is gonna be given to us because just like with Fortnite, if you hand it to a population, you're gonna get millions of people showing up trying it out. 
if you make it a $200 purchase, then not as many people are going to get into it. But if you hand it to everybody, everybody's going to try it. And then we're all going to eventually buy things in it. Yeah. It's like uh, anything. The first taste is free. Yep. I I hope in 10 years that we'll still be talking on a podcast and we will be talking about VR gaming. I think that's definitely Maybe the we'll future. be doing the podcast inside the VR. Ooh. Some of that inception oh, level dear. stuff. Yeah, it's, that'd that be sounds awesome. like fun. Yep. And then you'll all, it'll be like Wally. You'll, we'll all be morbidly obese and forget Wally. our human shells. Man, I was Everyone thinking more like... Hooked up. I was thinking more like... Do you know that person to the creepypasta or whatever? Horse eyes, 9x9. No, it's not ringing any bells. Okay, it was whatever. If you guys don't know, it basically was this person on Reddit who was making random posts on different Reddit or different subreddits, create one giant, like, creepy story. It's pretty good. Anyways, they created this idea that there is, like, kind of like a VR thing, which they called flesh interfaces, where you had to, like, have this IV connected to you with some type of psychotropic drug, and then your body then slowly got attached to this machine as it sucked out your body fluids. <laughs> I was thinking more like that. It's actually a pretty cool story and absolutely nuts. You, I would say suggest look up horse nine. Was it mother horse eyes? There you go. Mother horse eyes, nine X nine or whatever. Check it out. Mm. Pretty wicked stuff. Especially if you like things such as uh body horror, it's all body horror. Sounds like something to put in your show notes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So bedtime <laughs> reading. But uh, yeah, I think we have rambled for quite a while. So, I mean, we've had some good choices. We've seen some impacts, uh, definitely some impactful games from the past. And yeah, I think the main takeaway from most games, obviously apart from mine, was online is the way forward. If you ain't got an online mode, your game is essentially a footnote. Pretty much. it, It might give you something. It might do something really well but it's ultimately going to be left behind when like you said, well, I mean, when did Fortnite drop? 2017. 2017. And it's still as culturally relevant today as it was when it came out. And that's not even taking into account that the original trailer for whatever Fortnite was supposed to be came out when I was still in university, like 2007, 2008. You're a young there was a trailer for Fortnite and Epic announced it and then it went dead until 2017 because they reworked the entire thing. Like there was a ri- that game was originally supposed to be like a base building survival game. Didn't they steal they everything from PUBG or whatever? One oh yeah, that was, yeah. That was the, the reason. Yeah. Yeah. They saw how profitable that was and they did what PUBG didn't and like you said, they made it free. They made it accessible. It was supposed to be a throwaway mode. And um, yeah, unless that, that is the way things are going to go now. I mean, MMOs have been doing it for a while where you pay to get into the game and then the cost comes from keeping you in there. But some games have been doing it like um, there's one that I'm probably going to go back to soon. Vindictus. It's a South Korean MMO, but it's free, but it has a like absolute crap ton of cosmetic purchases that people do buy. And it's still running now. Like I was playing that game back in again, like 2008 when I was at university and they're releasing two new characters in the coming months. It's still going. 
Mm. It's crazy that if you market something correctly or there is no initial down payment, how loyal people will be to that thing. Mm. So I do, I do agree with you too, that the, the biggest impact that has come from modern games is that sustainable kind of environment of here's an entry price point or here it is for free. Come on in. Yeah. Cause people are always going to want yeah. shit for free. That's never going to change. 2020 yeah. man. 2020. <laughs> and then obviously we had a massive spike due to COVID of people probably going back to that game and going, well, works out. Trying to build some forts. So yeah. I believe that brings us nicely to the end of this segment, unless you guys wish to add anything further to your choices. Nah. Nope. Court is adjourned. So it has been an absolute treat as always, Kurt, having you on the show and getting to collaborate with you. It's always nice to spark up these debates. And I feel that, uh, it's, it's just a, a nice, almost like chat for me that other people get invited into after the fact. For sure. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. And uh, anybody who wants to find us, we are on Instagram, Reddit, and Facebook at Cultured Christians, plural. And if you want to find the podcast, we are on pretty much every platform that you can find podcast as the Cultured Christian, not plural, podcast. And we'd love to have you uh, check us out. Yep, there'll be links in the description as well. Uh, yeah, check them out, guys. Kurt's podcast. So, yep, please go over there, show some love. You might find mm. something you like. I personally listened to a few of the episodes, and even though the topics might not have resonated with me, it was an interesting d- debate to be a part of. So, it's definitely worth a listen. Sweet. Yeah, I've always, I really enjoyed your podcast as well. So. I suggest anyone to check it out. Lots to learn, especially from another point of view, rather than just always listening to uh, gamers talk. You hear someone else's perspective on normal things. <laughs> Sweet. So with that, we will close it out. So thank you once again to you, Kurt, for joining us. Hopefully we can do more stuff like this in the future. Yeah, it'd be Sounds great to collaborate to again, whether it be on your channel, our channel. 100% yeah. I am in. And... Thank you to everyone who is continually listening to the show. It is much appreciated. Things have been growing slowly but steadily. And uh, as Blake said last week, we will try and get more of an online presence going with things like Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, things like that. So don't forget to look out for us and uh, we will see you in the next one. So it's uh, goodbye for now. Yep. Peace. Adios.